are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. We open your Bibles, Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. I want to speak this afternoon on watching Jesus die. I want you to think with me about the crowd that sat and watched Jesus die, and then I'm going to show you that God intended them to represent us and to picture us. And if you watch closely today, you'll see yourself. Everyone will find yourself in part of that crowd sitting down watching Jesus die. Matthew chapter 27, begin with verse 33. And when they were coming to a place called Golgotha, that is to say the place of a skull, they gave him vinegar, vinegar to drink, mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They uh, parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there. And set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him, for he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also, which were uh, crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Now look at verse 50. Jesus, when he cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Now verse 54 and following. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus, this is the Roman army officer who was in charge of the crucifixion. When the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. And many women were there, beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, among which was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children. When the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also was himself Jesus, was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered, and when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. Now will you turn with me to John 19. I'm reading now, note, not just about the crucifixion, but about the people who saw the crucifixion. For the subject today is not Jesus dying, but they that watch him die. In John 19, begin with verse 25. 
And now they stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he said unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then said he to the disciples, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her into his own home. Now begin with verse, uh, uh, verse uh, uh, 38. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being his disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and, um, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus, and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. And uh, so Jesus died. Now we're watching Jesus die. Heavenly Father, will you open our hearts as we open the blessed book today? Dear Lord, will you cause us to have ears to hear? How many times in the Gospels you said, let him that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Oh, give us ears to hear, hearts to hear. Do not let us have ears turned away from God. Give us an understanding heart that we may believe and that we may know what you say. Oh, we pray that we may, no man, no woman here may avoid the implications of the scriptures, but let us listen and be glad to know what you speak to us out of the word. Now people have come from far and near for a blessing. Do thou give it. Lord, do thou give it. Let nobody depend on man, but on thee. And do thou speak to open and contrite hearts today with power. And we believe you will. We thank you for it. Amen. The crucifixion is a dateless and timeless event. That's one event which, uh, uh, the crucifixion, which was uh, uh, planned with before the world began. Don't you remember that the scripture says in Revelation 13, 8, that Jesus was as a lamb that hath been slain from before the foundation of the world. The Lord Jesus, in God's mind, in God's sight, was crucified before the world began. A woman wrote to me and said, Brother Rice, when did the atonement take place? I said, historically, when Jesus died outside the east gate of Jerusalem, on a little place that looked like a skull, a hill, and when the Jesus died and gave up the ghost, and when the soldier thrust a spear in his side and the blood was poured out, we're told that the blood paid for sin. Historically, back down when Jesus was crucified, the atonement was made. But in God's mind and heart, the atonement was made before this world ever began. You see, everybody who was ever saved in Old Testament time was saved on credit. Not on man's credit, but on the credit of Jesus Christ. Jesus had promised the Father before the world began, Father, I know men sin, men will sin if you give them freedom, but I'll pay their debt. I'll die for them and pay their sin debt. And God the Father took the Son up on the proposition, and now then, everybody who was ever saved in Old Testament time was saved by faith in a Savior who had not yet died, but who had promised God he would die, and who was committed in the Scriptures to die on the cross. And then when Jesus died, he paid what he had promised the Father to pay. You see, the crucifixion is thing that happened before the world began in God's mind. 
But that isn't all. The crucifixion is a thing that still happens every day. Don't you remember in Hebrews chapter 6 and verses 4 to 6, the scripture says that they that have been greatly enlightened and tasted the good word of God and the power of the world to come, if they, if they fall away from that conviction, if they fall away from that place when they could repent, why then they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. And it's impossible to renew them to repentance. People still crucify the Son of God afresh. Some people today in this area crucify Jesus. Maybe somebody under this roof today crucifies Jesus Christ afresh. So then you see the crucifixion is a dateless and timeless matter. And so it would be just as fitting here. Why, when Jesus died down there under 1900 and some odd years ago in Jerusalem outside the city gate, it was just as, it was no more necessary there than any other time except that God had planned the Jewish nation and Jerusalem to be kind of a lesson for all of us. But uh, uh, sinners, the whole world was sinful alike. Did you think if Jesus came today and if he lived in Georgia, if he preached, suppose he's born up here but Tekoa, and uh, are born in some little town and lived up here but Tekoa, and go down to Atlanta to preach at every feast day. And if he preached like he did before, do you suppose that people would like him better? Dr. Bob, people would kill him again. They'd kill him again. Don't let anybody make you think that Americans are so much nicer than the Jews were and that we wouldn't harm Jesus. No, no. This world hates Jesus Christ now. Oh, they like the Jesus that, um, that's in the picture books and the Jesus that's in the stories and the Jesus who was a good man and the Jesus who healed him or spoke nice things and so on. Like they, they like all prophets. You know, Riverside Church in, in, uh, in uh, New York City, uh, founded by Rockefeller Millions, and with the infidel Harry Emerson Fosdick as the pastor and now pastor emeritus, the same River Chiaside Church, Dr. Bob, where the, uh, the Dr. McCrossan came down the other day for a week at the seminary in March, it's Louisville Seminary, Southern Baptist Seminary. You can't claim the credit for that. You're not a Southern Baptist, Dr. Bob, but all of us Southern Baptists that support the Louisville Seminary, we had a part in supporting that infidel preacher. Your cooperative program money helped pay that infidel come down there and deny Jesus Christ at Louisville Seminary last March, I say. I say, in that Riverside Church, Dr. Bob, they put Jesus in there and Einstein, you know, and, and Jewish infidel, and um, other nice men, you know, everybody's for Jesus. But not if he's the exclusive and unique son of God. Not if it's going to be that. And so, um, oh, Jesus would be crucified again today. You know, I remember some time ago I was on a transcontinental train going out to the west coast and at Omaha a train came down from St. Paul and a woman had come from Winnipeg, Canada and they put that Pullman car onto this train and they gave me a berth across the aisle from a Jewish woman. She was a lovely lady, one of the most attractive, genteel, scholarly, all lovely, gentle woman and uh, I found she lived in Winnipeg. Her husband owned the largest kosher market in Canada. Her father was a Jewish rabbi, Orthodox Jews, 
And when she, she saw my briefcase, Dr. John R. Rice, and so she passed around the chocolates. She thought I was a physician, and she passed around chocolates and was so kind. When she found I was a preacher, she was a little embarrassed. You know, preachers are not always kind to Jews. I'm sorry to say, I'm so ashamed to say, but I told her, well, I'm a friend of the Jews. I said, did you know all my heroes, the ones that I have admired the most in the world, they were Jews. She said, is that so? Oh, yes, I said, there's nobody, my heroes like Moses and David and Elijah, that old prophet Elijah. And I said, my, and Peter and James and John. And I said, the one I worship and love more than anybody else in the universe was a Jew born of a Jewish mother. I said, oh, I love the Jews. And when she saw I made it, why, she began to ask me more questions. And we had two days on the two days and two nights on that train and uh, sat across the aisle. And she'd sit over in my seat and ask questions. Or she'd call me to her seat. And one day she said, now she said, I want you to go and eat with me in the dining car. And you be my guest. I said, no, you be my guest. You come and eat with me. The train was so crowded and we had to stand in line a long time to get into the dining car. It was in wartime. And I said, no, you eat with me. No, she said, you be my guest. I said, no, you be my guest. And she said, now look here. She said, I'm going to ask the questions and you're going to answer them so I'll pay for the dinner. So I said, all right, then I'll pay for the, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll ask, answer the questions. She was um, one of, uh, when the king and queen of England came to Canada some years ago, she was one of the handful of women invited to the governor's mansion to meet the queen and the king. She was somebody. Her husband, well-to-do, both of them uh, great civic leaders and are widely known for their gifts to the poor and such matters. And so she asked me questions. And she said, now, she said, Mr. Rice, as we stood in line, it's so long, and she said, will you tell me, she said, why it is? She said, you Christians say, and you say, that unless you be a Christian, you can't go to heaven. Now, why can't, if I'm a good Jew, and I do all I know to do, the best I know, just as honest as you do, why couldn't I go to heaven being a Jew? Just as much as if a Christian. Well, I said, I said, um, there's just one way to be saved. But I said, the truth is, you're not a good Jew. And she said, I am too. She said, I've been true to my husband. I have lived like my rabbi father taught me. And I've given to the poor. You come to my town and find out if there's anybody ever in trouble in my town, they come to me. And she said, I helped in the Red Cross and I helped even the rescue mission and the Red Cross and every kind of a civic drive and, and people poor. I help them all the time. And she said, I do the best I know how. Now, why would you say I couldn't go to heaven? She said, I, why if I'm a good Jew? I said, you're not as good a Jew as I am. I'm a better Jew than you are. Well, she said, how could you be? My father's a rabbi. I grew up in Orthodox Jewish home. My husband is, owns a kosher market. We go to the synagogue regularly. We keep all the rules. We are good Jews. I said, no, you're not. You ever read the Old Testament? She said, yes. Well, I said, the Old Testament shows that to be a good Jew, you've got to have bloody sacrifices, and you don't have any. You don't have any Passover lamb, and you know it. You don't have any red heifer, any young bullock, any turtle dove, any pigeons. You don't have any bloody sacrifices. Well, she said that's troubled me lots of times. And I asked my rabbi father 
bother about it. He said, well, if you had the bread for Passover, and if you did the best you could, said, we're a strange land. We're not in Palestine. We have no temple. We have no priesthood. They've even lost the records, and we do the best we can. But I said, you have to have blood. And she said, well, you said you're a better Jew. Do you have bloody sacrifices? I didn't know Christians had a Passover. And so I said, yes, I have a bloody sacrifice. Well, she said, tell me about it. And I said, you won't be offended. She said, no. And I went through the story of the crucifixion, how Jesus Christ fulfilled every promise, how Christ, the suffering Savior, he was the one who bruised, had them spears in his hands and the nail prints in his hands and feet and the spear in his side, and the blood poured out and fulfilled the prophecy of the 22nd Psalm, and how with his stripes we're healed, and how the precious blood of Christ paid for sin. And I told her that story. I tell it lots of times to lots of you Baptist people, deacons and preachers and Sunday school teachers, and you sit there. It doesn't stir you. You've heard it lots of times. That doesn't mean anything. Crucifixion, you've heard that. That Jewish woman, the tears, well, it could arise. And her lips quivered and she couldn't contain herself. And as I told the story about how Jesus died on the cross, she said, that was wicked. I wish the Jews hadn't done that. They'll have to pay for that, the Jews will. That was wicked. Jesus never harmed anybody. That was a wicked thing to do to Jesus. I told my father, the Jews, that you'll get it for that. They deserve it, she said, uh, treating Jesus like that. And I said, but it wasn't just the Jews. She said, was it not? I've always heard it was the Jews crucified Jesus. Well, I said, there was Pontius Pilate. He was not a Jew. And Herod was not a Jew. And the Roman soldiers were not Jews. I said, the Jews were guilty enough, but it wasn't only the Jews, it was everybody else. She said, is that so? And I said, yes. I said, that isn't all you did too. And she said, I would not. I wouldn't do such a thing, that wicked thing. I wouldn't do it. I don't harm anybody, and I certainly wouldn't harm anybody as good as Jesus. And I said, you did? And I said, I did too. I'm so sorry to say, for I said, the Lord had laid on him the iniquities of us all. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So I said, your sins nailed him there. My sins nailed him there. I wish I had time to tell you all the story. I wish I could tell you. She said, couldn't I accept Christ and not tell my husband? Could I tell? Uh, could I accept Christ and not tell my rabbi father? He's in Austria still. It'd break his heart. Could I accept Christ without coming out in my town and telling it? And I, I told her plainly what God required. But Dr. Bob, I believe that woman turned to Jesus in her heart. I expect to meet her in heaven. But I thought mine, Jesus, crucifixion for everybody. Everybody here just as guilty of the death of Christ as the Jewish race. Everybody here just as much a party to the crucifixion as the soldiers that got the hammer and the big spikes and drove me in. Everybody here just as much accountable as the soldier that took the spear and took the spear in his side and the blood gushed out, blood and water. Everybody here just as much responsible, I guess, as Pilate and the Jews and all. We have part in the death of Jesus Christ. And so we just, we just well face it then. The crucifixions for all of us. Well, let's sit down and watch him die. Then Jesus 
said, and sitting down, they watched him there. So now let's put it down here in 1955, and that's Lake Louise, Shakur, Georgia. And here's a great cross, and there's Jesus nailed across. And there's a dying thief on the cross, and here's a thief on this cross. And here's the soldiers, they stripped off the clothes of these folks, and they want what they get, so they ripped off the clothes. They won't need it. And I guess a fellow's much ashamed to be left naked there. It won't matter long, because he's going to soon be dead. And the soldiers gamble for the garments of Jesus, and the crowd gathers round and watch Jesus die, and sitting down, they watch him there. Now today, here you are, sitting down, watching Jesus, and I want in your mind's eye, I want you to see a crucifixion, here's Jesus, and here you out there, and let's go back, for everybody there was just a cross-section of society, some saved and some lost, there were some people near the cross and some afar off, there's some earnest working Christians and some were cowards and some were quitters. All kinds of Christians, all kinds of lost people there. And now, sitting down, they watched him there. I hope as you meditate on that verse with me, and sitting down, they watched him there. God will show you. If I point you out in that crowd that sat down and watched Jesus die, will you say, Lord, that's me. That's me. It's me. It's me, oh Lord, standing in need of prayer. Will you say, that rang my bell, Lord. I'm that, that's the way I am. That's my case. God, speak to you. First of all, will you consider with me the, the Christians who were at the crucifixions, the Christians who were there watching Jesus die. First of all, of these, there was a little handful of good Christians, inner circle Christians. There was Mary, the mother of Jesus. The scripture says, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and Mary, the wife of Cleopas, and Mary Magdalene, and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Those were there. At least those four, maybe the others, not very many. You know, Dr. Bob, there are not very many real inner circle Christians. I don't know why I'm always surprised that that ought not to be. In Bible times, everybody else quit it. In Bible time, most people sold out. In Bible time, not very many people stay put. Doctor, I, I don't know why. I never get over it. There's such a little handful that really stay right up by the cross of Christ. In our circle Christians, there they are. I'm so glad they were there. I think I can read the mind of Mary. Here's Mary nearby. I can, she's close enough to hear the sigh and hear the dripping of the blood from the Savior's hands and feet. And when he said, I thirst, and they took vinegar and gall and rubbed it on a sponge across his mouth, I know how she would if she could have gotten cool water and carried it to him, but she couldn't. And so she's remembering. What are you thinking about, Mary? Oh, I remember when I brought the little bit of a bundle in my arms to the temple. I remember how the old Simeon said, Yea, he said, a sword shall pierce through thine own soul also. And this is the day, Mary, the sword pierces through your soul. You came here to watch your son die. Mary loved him, and she stayed up close to the cross. I take a great joy in this, that somebody was close enough to suffer with Jesus, and he could look down and see their tears and know they loved him. I wonder, are you an inner circle Christian? There are not many. There never were. When Jesus was going up on the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember the Bible said he was going to pray. Well, not many people are ready for a prayer meeting, especially if you have to climb a mountain. Now, if they've been sightseeing to see the mountain, that's another matter. But for a prayer meeting, well, only Peter, James, and John went. 
And the rest of them said, well, Jesus, you know, we were up late last night and preaching's a heavy business, and I'll be with you in spirit. I don't want to climb the mountain. And so the rest of them were down there in the valley, and when a poor devil-possessed boy was brought to them, they couldn't cast out the devil. But Peter, James, and John, just three, were up on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw Jesus transfigured, only three. Another time, there was a little girl, 12 years old, and uh, she died, and uh, they called in Jesus, and he went in and took Peter and James and John and the father and mother of the damsel and shut the door and shut everybody else out. And then he raised the little girl from the dead, just a few inner circle Christians, not many. And the night Jesus was in Gethsemane, he took Peter and James and John and went a little further. Oh, there haven't been very many people any time that if Jesus had to pray, if Jesus had a burden, not many people bear the burden. You know, Dr. Bob, I think sometimes the Bible calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of supplication. I think sometimes if we only knew it, that burden to pray that now and then comes on us is the kind Jesus has all the time for a dying world. And sometimes we're just close enough to feel it, a little of that burden and compassion and passion he has for dying sinners everywhere. So now Jesus said, come on, I've got to pray. And they went with him, Peter, James, and John. And even then they fell asleep. But out the cross is just a little handful of inner circle Christians. I wonder if you are near the cross today. I wonder. A minority, you understand. Close to crucified Savior. Not the popular. A lot of people say, come down from the cross and then we'll go with you. Yeah, I'm for you, Jesus, but not the cross. Not this bit as everybody spitting at you and calling you names, and so I'm not for that. But now, but I'm a Christian, but I'm no fool about it, you know. Everybody, you know how that is, don't you? Well, now, uh, I wonder how many here are the little minority, alone and shut off the despised few, bearing the reproach of Christ in the inner circle every year. The other day, I, I've been thinking... I was meditating on that passage in Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock if any man hear my voice. And I thought, well, Lord, doesn't everybody hear? We Christians? No, no, a lot of people don't hear. If anybody's got to ask you, let him hear. So many Christians. Listen, there are people sitting here this afternoon who are saved, and you haven't had a special uh, a special deal with Jesus Christ, an intimate answer to prayer, a heartwarming experience, a, a, a kind of a happy fellowship of rejoicing and heart running over and burning heart. You haven't had such an intimate little touch with Jesus, some of you, in weeks and months. Some of you in weeks and months. Did you know that? Yeah. You're not near the cross. You're not near the cross. In particular, we're not near the crucified Savior. Not where the blood's always in it. And the odium. And the reproach. And the mockery. And no, no. A little handful of inner circle Christians. I wonder, are you near the cross? Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain. So Fanny Crosby wrote. I wonder, do you feel that? So when Jesus died, there was a little handful of people in the inner circle. Not very many. Oh, God, make it so that in your constant love for Christ, in your love for the Word, in your passion for souls, in keeping the secret watch with God every day, and secret prayer with the Bible, oh, if God will let some more people get in that little inner circle, 
miracle before we'll eat here today. Wouldn't that be good? And then next, another crowd, there were those that watched Jesus. Who were there? There were the quitters. There were the quitters. I turn back to Matthew 26 and verse 56. And Jesus is arrested. And then the scripture says a strange and frightening thing. The scripture says here, but all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. They all quit it. Now they were all for it, and they all loved it. And they truly been converted. Judas is already gone. The rest of them truly been converted. But when Jesus got arrested, they said, I'll care. I can't have my whole life broken up. And I don't I can't afford this getting in jail. And I don't think that will do any good. And so they all forsook him and fled. And you're a nice Christian too. Unless it comes a time that you get in trouble over it, unless it's going to cost you something, and then you flee too, isn't it? You know, I find in everywhere I go, I find people that quit on God. I don't mean you quit being saved. That's something God did for you, not that you did for God. But as far as active service, as far as an out and out, uh, a daily self-crucifixion and life on the altar, paying the price of discipleship, there are lots of Christians who quit on God. Oh, maybe it was in the choir, and maybe Mrs. Jones was accustomed to singing the solos, and then Mrs. Brown moved into town, and then she had a sweet voice, they began to have her sing the solo parts, and so Mrs. Jones said, okay, that's all right by me, if you like her screeching, why go ahead, you can have her sing if you want to, you can have your own choir, and so she quit. She quit. I didn't mean she wasn't saved. I just mean that she, she quit in a time of type. It's going to cost something taking second place. She quit. You know the hardest instrument in the world to play in a, an orchestra is second fiddle. Ah, my. Lots of people, good enough Christians, play first fiddle, but you can't play second fiddle. And so Mrs. Brown quit. And maybe it wasn't that way. It may be that your church grew. And so when the Sunday school grew, and you worked hard and got a Sunday school class, and you had 15, 20 boys or girls or whatever it was, and got so many going to have a promotion day, and you said, you can't take my grass away from me. I'm not hard for these. They all need these boys or these girls. You can't. Well, but I know, but we've got to have a promotion day, and we can't stop the whole Sunday school because you like your class, and after you put all the pressure you could and got the kids to talk to dads and mothers and, and threaten to quit coming and all that, and then finally they had promotion day anyhow, or they divided the class and gave that to somebody else. So you said, okay, I just wear myself out building up a class, and now they tear the thing up. Okay, you can have your Sunday school, and you quit. Yeah? You don't think I'm making this up, brother? I've been in so many churches. Yeah, I've been a pastor too. Yeah. yeah. My grandfather helped found this church, and, um, on the old church building, we've got the main big window, a stained glass window. It's got his name on it. And so I know more about this than most people. And so I said, oh, what are we going to do, soldier? No, now I'll coach you. They're going, you say, okay, you can just have the business in. And you take out. You can't have the kind of a building and build it your way and finance it your way and, and so and so. And so you quit. You quit on God. Maybe it wasn't that. That seems childish. Maybe it wasn't that. Maybe you used to go to church. Maybe you had a work to do, and God sent a baby. Ah, oh, the baby you prayed for. And God gave it, and that little one's so close. Now you say, now I've got to be in at night. I can't take me the baby up at night. And I've got to do this, and I've got to do that. And so you quit on God because God gave you a blessing. 
Yeah, or maybe it wasn't that. Maybe you used to be very active in the church someday, and, and you got on, and you know the Lord blessed you so last while your business just prospered and prospered, and you just got so busy. You just can't afford to spend all the time now you used to spend for the Lord and for the church and for soul winning. You just got so busy. God bless you so much, and you quit on God. Listen, maybe that isn't it. Young man, young woman, somebody here. You used to take early morning watch a time you had your Bible and you studied and prayed. Oh, it was sweet. And the Lord seemed so near. And you got to where you, you just neglected it. And somewhere other, you have for a long time taken time to be holy, meet God in prayer, and stay there till your heart burns within you. You haven't taken time to confess your sins. Long time now since you wept on your knees as you asked God to make you what he wants you to be. You didn't take time for that secret time of prayer. You didn't meet God there. You've lost your first love and you've lost your joy. That's too bad. You quit on God. Or somebody once was a tither. I'm shocked to find it. Once you were a tither, but you quit. Once you subscribed for the sword of the Lord and it quit coming and you intended to renew and you didn't do it. You're lazy good for nothing. You don't have enough principle and backbone and convictions to live by and so you drift along and you don't serve God much because you quit. You know, I wonder how many quitters on God here. I don't mean you quit loving God. I don't mean you quit claiming to be saved. You just quit in duty when there came a time of hardship or you neglected or you couldn't have your way or somebody talked about you. One woman told me, she said, I have to be a soul winner. And the first place you won, went, she talked to one woman and the woman laughed. So she swore she'd never try again to win a soul. Well, what a poor Christian Jesus had done. The bloody sweat of Gethsemane and the scourge on his back and the crown of thorns and vinegar and gall on his lips and the stripped naked and nails through hands and feet and died. And you can't take a little laughing. You know, it's all, it all takes my little to stop some people. Takes my little to stop some people. God have pity on you Christians that so easy to stop in serving God. You quit. But what you better do today is just come back to the old place and make an open confession and go back and pick up your cross and do what God told you to do. I'd go back and start again that little secret worship. Maybe it was family worship. Maybe it was tithing and you quit it. Maybe it was personal soul winning and you quit it. I'd go back to it. God help me. How many here are quitters? On God. You got going got tough and then you quit. Yeah, the going got tough, you quit. Man can't work for me the other day, and by the way, came from down south. Can't work for me the other day, and so and uh, it came, turned out that he was late for work three times in the first eight days. And I called him in three times and I said I I said, Now three times, that's once too many. That's once too many. Well, he said, I am, I knew you have an understanding heart, he said, and this was an emergency. I said, in our work, people supposed to be on time, even in an emergency. You're supposed to do right whether it's convenient or not convenient. Did you know that? Nobody's in account if this easy stopped. Anybody that does right, as long as it's convenient, doesn't cost anything, doesn't hurt anybody's feelings, and so and so, I do right if I feel right. 
I'll get to work on time. But he said, you know, I didn't sleep till 11.30 the night before. I said, that's your business. You arrange about your sleeping. But your, your paid time, that's our business. You be here on time. I got a letter from a secretary today. She's been checking up. She said, he's been 10 minutes ahead of time every day since then. I'm just waiting for the first time. I said, if there ever comes a time that you're going to have to be five minutes late, you sure better get me on the phone because if I don't know it ahead of time, you're out, I said. Yeah, yeah. Listen, this business of quitting when things don't go, you're no good to God unless you say, by God's grace, I'm going to do right, whether it's easy or not easy, whether other people do or don't, whether I'm sick or whether I'm well, whether I got the money or don't have the money, you quit on God. How many? Well, ain't one of these disciples said, well, now, that's all right, Brother Wright, you talk that way, but I'll tell you right now, that crowd was mad, and they had sticks, and some of them had swords, and they looked like they was going to kill somebody, too. And so I, now, I wouldn't run in just ordinary cases, but a Christian that's not got enough for some extraordinary cases isn't much of a Christian. Did you know that? Did you know that? Then you quit on God. I come back and confess it and start over. All right, who else is watching Jesus? Christians watching Jesus. There was Joseph of Arimathea. I wish I could talk to you about him a good while. He was a good man. The Bible said so. He was a good man. I mean, for that, I think he was sincere. I think he loved Jesus with a heart's love. He was a good man. He's a good man. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, so in a very important place of one of the 70 man tribunal of spiritual things of the whole Jewish nation. Nicodemus was another one. And so uh, uh, Joseph was a good man, but he was a disciple of Jesus too, but secretly. You know, it's too bad about these people that are good Christians, but, and this he was, he was a good man, but he was a good Christian, except he was a coward. No good for God, because uh, there was a but after his love and loyalty. He was, he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. You know, I'm beginning to believe that one of the greatest sins of a Christian is cowardice. Part of his cowardice is unbelief. All the Bible says against lack of faith would fit into coward. Because you don't really believe God will help you out. You don't really think you'll win out if you do right. You don't believe what God said. Part of it's unbelief. Well, whatever you call it, cowardice is a wicked sin. That is the trouble of the chosen. You know, nearly everybody doesn't get anybody saved it's because you're a coward. Nearly everybody here doesn't win souls because you're a coward. Nearly every preacher that sells out, it's not because he isn't saved, not because he doesn't believe the Bible, because he's a coward. He just can't stand up and take the licking. That's all. My, my. I remember when God laid his hand on me to preach. And I said, Lord, you know, I didn't get educated to preach. I was going to be a college teacher, a college president. I took my work in English literature and in sociology and education, and I wasn't planning to be a preacher. And so and I said, Lord, I don't know whether I can preach or not. But I said, Lord, I'll promise you this. I won't tell out. I'm going to tell the truth for you. I'll speak it out true and plain. Blessed be God, he helped me on that. I remember when I grew up out in West Texas, we raised lots of fine horses, and I broke lots of horses to ride. And I trained out those fine-blooded horses, make fine saddle horses, and Dad would sell them. I had a string always about a half a dozen of the prettiest horses in our county that I rode and nobody else. High-stepping, good-blooded horses. And sometimes we'd get a horse with 
to run a big bunch in a corral and would rope a horse and going to break him to ride and get a rope on his neck and, and uh, hold on to the rope and snub him up to a post, you know. And now then, while we got him up as close as we can and got him choking it down to ride that rope out there till I get up to him and get him by the ears and hold him down good. And if he's extra rambunctious, you have trouble, why, uh, get one ear in your mouth and hold him down good and get the blanket on him and get the saddle on him and get it girded up good and, and listen to how loud he, he grunts and, um, and takes on as you, and bellers as you saddle him up because that's going to tell about how mean he is. And then you get the bridle on him or a hackamore and then you put a bandana handkerchief around his eyes where you can get on him good and you get on there, you know, and sometimes I, well, I wouldn't say I'm scared, only sometimes my feet were just a little agitated. Sometimes I'd have to get the stirrup and put it on the foot because I couldn't put the foot in the stirrup well and so on. And Dad would sometimes say, son, you don't have to ride him. Don't get on him if you're afraid of him. Don't get on him if you don't want to. You don't have to ride him. But he would say, son, if you get on him and he throws you, you climb right back up on him. He said, we're not going to spoil a good horse. You know, I didn't think much about it then. I thought Dad was thinking about the horse. I later decided that Dad was making a preacher. I didn't know then. But I'll tell you right now, I promised God when I began to preach, all right, Lord, I promise you one thing. I may never be able to preach with a silver tongue of a truant or with some other people. I promise you, Lord, I won't cut the corners. I'll preach it plain and straight. And I won't please anybody. And some of you people don't like that kind of preaching. Okay, then, if any next time you hear somebody complaining, you just say, well, that poor nut, he made a vow to God and he can't be changed. And you got to either take him like he is or do without him. That's all, because I don't plan to change. I'm going straight down the middle of the road and run over anything that's in the way. God help me, I'm going to tell the truth. I'm not going to be a coward. I can't think of anything that's worse than for a preacher to be a coward. I remember one woman said to me one time, she said, Brother Rice, we have the dearest little preacher. Said he, he never does get on politics or religion either one. She meant that, of course, they've jumped to other denominations, you know, never hurt the other people's feelings, half so and so. Listen, I'll tell you right now, Joseph Arimathea, good man, but he was a coward, good man. Some of you are good people, and you don't have the stuff to go home and talk to your own children about the Lord. You just don't have the just ordinary, common backbone. Good intelligent integrity and conscience and manhood, womanhood, go talk to that child of your own. Say, look here, you need to be saved, and I want you to be saved. If you ever get that, you get people saved. A lot of you preachers, the reason, if you ever get whereby God's grace, you just crack down, come hell or high water, and do what's right about it, God's going to bless it. I was at Minneapolis in a great meeting in February. I believe it was in February of this year. And um, so I was at the Curtis Hotel. And the Curtis Hotel is always kind to us speakers. You've been there, Dr. Bob, and so on. And so um, a bunch of us together. And so we said, well, what do we do? And I said, well, I went in there and started to eat in there this morning. I finally got wine and liquor on the menu, cocktails on the menu. I don't eat in there. Well, they said, okay, what are you going to do there? Suppose that you do. And I said, well, I'm going over here to a little bit of a greasy spoon place across the corner, eat over there. Well, I what? Suppose that, suppose that over there they serve beer. And, uh, and I said, well, that's okay. And, well, I suppose you can't find any place. I said, okay, just suppose you don't find any place that's convenient at all. I'm still going to do right come hell or high water, and you need to try to bluff me out of it. 
And a shame that bunch of preachers going along with me. Listen, I'm just telling you now, you're no good for God if you're a coward. No good for God if you're a coward. Wouldn't you like to come out and say, by God's grace, I'm going to stand up, stand up for Jesus. He's soldiers of the cross. Lift high as royal banner, it must not suffer loss. My, sometimes if somebody just have grace. A lot of you people are good Christians. Not good enough to bow your head and thank God when you're down to cafe eating a dinner at space. You're good Christians. Not enough to take your Bible with you down where you work. You're a good Christian, but not enough. They can say every manner of blasphemy. They can take God's name in vain. They can tell any dirty yarn down there where you work. And you sit there and, and you don't open your chop. You dirty coward. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you said I've got my job. Yeah, you'd rather have your job, no matter that drag the name of Jesus Christ in the dust, and you don't speak up. You better, you better stand up for Jesus. Are you a coward? Like that's why you don't win. So that's why you, somebody you love, that everybody here has had the leading with God. You go talk to somebody you didn't do it. You were a coward. You were a coward. God give us grace. Another word. Who was there watching Jesus? There was Simon Peter. How do you know it's there? Because in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says, I write unto you elders, I who also am an elder and a witness of Je- and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Jesus, for Peter said, I was there. I saw him die. Peter was there. I wish I'd been there. You know, hindsight's better than foresight. I wish I'd been there. I'd go back. Old Peter was way at the back somewhere. He wasn't down here at the front when Jesus died. I wish I'd go back down there. I'd say, Peter, come on. Come on down to the front here. Jesus loves you still. Peter, Peter, Jesus won't let you go. He said it. Oh, Peter said, no, I'm washed up. No, don't you hear me cussing and swearing? I got in the wrong crowd and I lost my courage. And before I knew it, I cursed and swore. And I'm gone now. Well, I'm quitting the ministry. I'm going back to the fishing business. I got a big family. And my mother-in-law lives with me. And I got to make a living. And I'm going back to fishing business. I wish I'd been there to tell him, Peter. You don't need to go back to the fishing business. Jesus loves you. He won't give you up. He's for you still. Come on down here, Peter. Poor old Peter. I feel very sympathetic with him. I was in a revival service down close to Fort Worth, and it was old man Uncle Joel East, an old man 84 years old, and a very nice old man, a learned old fellow too, and uh, and yet a very quaint. And I heard him teach in a Sunday school class after I had preached one night in the revival. Sunday school class next morning, he said, these preachers, he said, they're always clearing up Peter. He said, I ain't got no confidence in Peter. He said, he said I ain't got no confidence. That's a good idea. But you know, I have a great sympathy for Simon Peter. He's so close to me. Oh, yes, you know, this bit of talking first and thinking afterward, if necessary. A lot of people do that to Dr. Bob, you know, Simon Peter. And now then, Simon Peter's quit the ministry, but Jesus wouldn't let him go. And somebody's here today, and you've lost your joy. Oh, somebody here, you don't even know for sure you're saved. You've lost all your fellowship with God. You don't pray because you think it didn't do any good. You don't read the Bible because some way you feel it's alien. You feel, uh, I'm not fit to do it. God won't hear me. Listen, let me tell you this, backslider. God is married to the backslider. 
God loves just Peter. He wouldn't let Peter go. He brought Peter back and put him back to preaching. God loves you still. You can come. I was in revival services at Claim Street Church in Aurora, Illinois, and uh, there was a man there, an engineer, on what was then the fastest train in the world, the Burlington Zephyr, to Minneapolis. And he was every other night. He was there. And I preached that every night. I'd watch him and a great crowd of others, and I'd... <coughs> I'd say, how many are born again Christians? He wouldn't raise his hand. I was praying for that old tough sinner that came there. I didn't know all about him, but he listened so and he must be under conviction, so I prayed for him. Sunday afternoon I preached on watching Jesus die. Then I preached about old Simon Peter that denied Jesus and cursed and swore and lost his testimony and lost his joy and lost his assurance and quit the ministry. And Jesus run him down and told, ran him down and told him, I won't let you go, Peter. I prayed for you that you faith fail not. The devil wants you, but he can't have you, Peter. Come on back and go to preaching. And I, I remember I said, after that, is there anybody here that you were a happy Christian, and you prayed, and you read the Bible, and you knew you were saved, and you loved the Lord, but you've lost it all some way. No assurance and no joy. And I said, is anybody here like old Simon Peter? And you lost out the same way. Some way you got bachelor and cold. And this old man raised his hand. That engineer raised his hand. And I didn't pay attention the first time. We get back and forth. You know, he was a he wasn't ashamed of it. So I so since he is so rambunctious about it, I said, Hey you I said, Are you have you ever been saved? He said, Yes, I have. Well I said, You've been lying to God all this week. I've been watching. You never hold your hand. You've been saved. And the tears streaming down his face. He said, Brother Rice, I didn't know I was a Christian. I thought God quit me. I thought I was rubbed out. I thought God had thrown me away. I didn't think he'd have me. I didn't think I was fit to say as a Christian. But he said, If you take a fellow back like it did Peter, then maybe he still loves me. And I said, He does love you. Come on down here. He came to confess his sin and start over. Blessed be God, who's married to the backslider, who said, I will not let thee go. Who said, Peter, I pray for thee that thy faith fail not. Are you a backslider? I wonder how many here once you were happy. Well, if you're not as happy as you once were, you've slidden back that much. I wonder how many once you read the Bible more than you do now, then you've slid back, haven't you, son? I wonder how many here once you worked hard to win souls than you do now, then you've backslidden some, haven't you? I wonder how many were once happier in the Lord than you are now, then you're a backslider. Don't lie about it, admit it. You say, I'm a poor old backslider. I confess it. Thanks be to God. You're not cast away. God loves you. He'll forgive you. He'll clean you up. He'll set you back in the harness. I don't take time to preach longer. Lost people watching Jesus too. There was uh, there were the Pharisees, unconverted church members. There was Pilate who kept his job and damned his soul. There was centurion, Paul's waited. And there was uh, the mob just following the crowd, keeping up the lizzie and going to hell. And there was a dying thief who turned to Jesus on the last minutes of his life. But listen, thank God Jesus took the one who came, the dying thief. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons podcast from PreachTheBible.org a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, preachthebible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit knvbc.com for Christian music you can trust.